Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show for Friday, October 27th. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. On this episode, we will discuss two recently eliminated teams from this postseason because we have a couple of World Series preview episodes already in the feed. We'll talk about the Astros and where things stand for them, looking at 2024 and beyond. We'll do the same thing on the NL side with the Phillies. We'll probably sneak in a few World Series predictions of our own, and then we'll take a trip back to the Fall League because I had a robust list of players that we didn't get to last week because we had a nice conversation about splits and a bunch of other things that were happening in the postseason at that point. So, Keith, let's start with the Astros. This is a team that made it to the LCS seven consecutive seasons. They have done a great job replacing high-level players that have departed in free agency with internal options. Jeremy Pena took over for Carlos Correa. We just saw Chaz McCormick sort of ascend into a larger role this year, Mm -hmm. even though this wasn't the year they lost George Springer. But they've been able to find and develop talent and not retain every member of the core that was there back when this run started. I think the question is, how long can this window stay open? It seems like we're at least in the back half of the window, somewhere in the back half. But are we nearing the final couple of years of the Astros dominance throughout the American league and their consistency of being so successful in the postseason. I like the way you put it there where it's the back half, but it's not closed. And I don't feel like that's imminent um, for a couple of reasons. One is, so I don't, um, I don't correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think they're losing anybody significant this off season. Um, So that's a huge help, obviously. And so if they're basically returning the same roster that won the division, okay, barely, but still they won the division and came within a win of the World Series. And it's basically the same club. And I think they did so despite maybe some uh, internal handicaps they placed on themselves, uh, which we can talk about in a second. But I don't see any reason that this same exact club couldn't uh, at least replicate what they just did. Um that said, the farm system has thinned out substantially through trades, through much lower draft picks, and through a change in approach. Also, right, they're just not drafting. This isn't the this isn't the group that the group that was behind a lot of those very successful draft picks has been in Baltimore for five or six years. So now Baltimore is having very successful draft picks, and I think the quality of the Astros drafts have gone down substantially because of all of those factors I just mentioned. And so, as a result, yeah, farm system is substantially worse off than it was a couple of years ago and not as well equipped to replace all of these guys who uh, who might be leaving or through free agency or just getting older and do need, um, you know, are going to need to be replaced. You know, I look at Hunter Brown as an example of one of their better, more successful draft picks in recent years. But Hunter Brown 
has at the very least not shown enough that he's going to be able to take over a rotation spot pitch well enough for that anytime soon. He does have he certainly you could envision an upside for him where that happens, but his command, he had a five ERA this year, and his command is really nowhere close to where it would need to be for him to be more than what he was this year, basically. And that might happen at some point. But this isn't an Astros pitching prospect of five, six, seven years ago, where they were churning out the, the Javier's and the Garcia's and the Valdez's who all got there, who all did develop into that kind of um that kind of starting pitcher and fairly quickly did so. So I'm optimistic about them for the next year or two, but something's going to have to happen very differently beyond that. Yeah. I, I think when you, you take a quick look over at Cots contracts or wherever you like to look at future mm-hmm. contracts, uh, Alex Bregman's extension that he signed before 2020, that runs out after 2024. So they got one more year of Bregman before they have to extend him or mm-hmm. let him go via free agency. They've got one more year of Altuve from the long-term extension he signed all the way back in like 2018. At least that's when the extension started. They've got uh, Abreu for a couple more years. He's not necessarily a core guy. He's a secondary guy. We talked about that signing at the time being very problematic given his age. That doesn't look like it's going to age well. So two more years of Abreu. Mm-hmm. The Jordan Alvarez deal runs through eternity, and he signed through 2028. So he's not going anywhere anytime soon. Kyle Tucker yep. has two more years of arbitration before becoming a free agent after 2025. So as far as the position player core, two big questions looming after next season. And then you've got a bunch of guys like Jeremy Pena and Chaz McCormick who have done well, who are taking on prominent roles who are going to be there for a long time as well. So they're in good shape mm-hmm. in general. You know, the things you, you've mentioned about the system, it's much harder when you have that success to draft players as efficiently and effectively as they did when they were bad, because you're picking a lot later in the draft order, right? The, yep. the hit rates as you move to the back of the first round are a lot different than being up near the front of the draft order. But they also have done something really well, even with those departures where they've got guys that come kind of out of nowhere. I mean, mm-hmm. even Hunter Brown, that wasn't a late pick, but mm-hmm. wasn't a first rounder. McCormick, I think, was a twenty-first rounder. Yeah, like, yeah. like just finding McCormick finding is the best players. example. Yeah, McCormick is what the hell? Who saw that coming? Clearly, Dusty Baker, because he still wouldn't play him every day. Which you know, one of the things that they can do differently next year without changing anyone on the roster is just play McCormick every day. You could take the guy that. Um has had a double-digit barrel rate every year that he's been in the big leagues and had a 353 OBP this year. Mm-hmm. Gives you power, gives you speed, plays good enough defense. You could play that guy and give him 650 plate appearances at a 450. That'll probably make you better. That's, yep. a, that's a nice little thing to have in your back pocket. So um, I, I fully believe in the Chaz McCormick breakout. I mean, this is this is a legitimately good player. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the, the guy that I'm more I'm more up in the air about in terms of his offensive potential Mm-hmm. is Jeremy Pena. I thought we would get more from Jeremy Pena. I know there was the the wrist injury that was a factor last season that cost him some production, I think, in the second half of the year, yeah. if my memory serves me right. The plate skills got better, right? He struck out a bit less. He walked a little bit more in 2023. It wasn't all bad, but the power basically got cut in half. He went from 22 homers in 2022 to 10 this year. Yeah, uh, He wasn't efficient as a base stealer, hit the ball on the ground a lot, so it was kind of a mixed bag. Like a few things got better, but a few things got worse. And I'm just curious what you attribute that to and if there's still reason to look back at 2022 and, and sort of project the best versions of that with some of the improvements he showed with those plate skills in 2023. Yeah, I 
I struggle a little bit with this one because I know there's probably some confirmation bias happening here because I can never quite shake the sense of, you know, who was Jeremy Pena, particularly as a prospect. He was hurt for most of 2021, did a tremendous amount of work on himself. He got he clearly got substantially stronger, just looked substantially stronger. And then when he came out of the shoot really hot in 22, oh, this is what he is. He's a completely different guy. And then cratered in the second half of 22. And now, so now we've got what you mentioned, this wrist injury, but we've got like a half season where he was a low BP power guy who could really play shortstop. And then a season and a half where he's a low BP, a little bit of power guy who can really play shortstop. And I'm, I'm just inclined to say that's what he is because also that aligns a lot more with the player he was supposed to be as a prospect. I just don't want to sound like I'm dismissing the possibility that the player we saw in the first half of 2022 comes back at some point Um, where look, even in both of these seasons, each of these scenes, he's basically a league average hitter who can really play shortstop. That's a good player. If that's all he ever is for the rest of his career, that's a really valuable player and he's going to make a lot of money. So I don't want to, again, I don't want to seem too dismissive because again, I think he's, Right. I think he's got a chance to be really valuable and play for a very long time. I just, I'm not sure that there's that upside. You could look at him if you knew nothing about the player, if you had no history on him, you could look at his age and you could look at what he did the first half of 2022 and say, and some of the better ball data at least, and say that that player's still in there's a good chance of him coming back. And I'm saying, I think maybe there's a smaller chance of him coming back. I wouldn't be dying to replace him. I think the Astros have bigger things they need to do. And I think if Jeremy Pena is your starting shortstop, you can win a World Series. He's a good enough player for that. Well, that happened last year, obviously. But I'm, I, I think this version of Jeremy Pena is good enough to play every day for a contender. I'm just not sure that that, that next gear is there. I think where it gets more complicated is in a world in which, you know, Jose Altuve, if he moves on after 2024 or if Bregman mm-hmm. moves on, if they don't replace those guys with similarly talented guys in the free agency. Those players might not even exist. It just puts more pressure on the players like Pena to get better. That's where some of the questions for me come from. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know there were some people that were frustrated with the performance of Kyle Tucker in the postseason. I don't want to read much into that because I think Kyle Tucker's a really good player. He's a superstar. Just didn't hit at the right time. Yeah. Do you think there's a chance... They would extend him. We've seen some extensions. We've seen mm-hmm. some guys walk. Which side do you think you know, Jim Crane and the front office ultimately will fall on with Kyle Tucker? And which side should they fall on if your opinion differs from what you think they're going to do? I, I actually think they're going to try to extend all three of those guys you mentioned. That is my best guess, is that we see extension efforts with Altuve, Bregman, and Tucker. I think Altuve is the most likely to stay. I think Tucker is probably the most likely to leave because of his age, right? This might be his one enormous payday. I think the market for him will be off the charts um, and Bregman somewhere in the middle. I think they'll try. And this is also their best bet to stay contenders. One reason I am not saying, well, the window closes when you were talking earlier. Oh, well, these guys are all leaving after 24. Now, I think Jim Crane will spend to keep his own guys. That's the, probably the thing I worry about the least with this club is retaining the players they have. Now, I think they may retain those players for too long. That's a thing. Um, 
But I think I'd rather have that than the owner who's just like, I'm not paying anybody and everyone leaves, you know, which is, I was going to say the Cleveland model, they kept Jose Ramirez. So maybe that's not entirely fair, but that's kind of that direction. I don't think that's the case. Also, I look at Houston and I think a lot of these decisions are really being made by the owner who's being influenced by, you know, Jeff Bagwell and possibly Reggie Jackson. Like, I don't think Dana Brown is really making a lot of these decisions where Dana would probably be a little bit more balanced. Um, you know, Crane is going to listen to his baseball guys. It seemed like that's what happened last winter and the, the deals his baseball guys talked him into like Abreu and Rafael Montero were kind of disasters. So I, I don't, I don't know any evidence that that's changed. And that makes me think they may do the, the, it's almost like a populist thing, but these are all three these guys are really good players. So sometimes the populist argument isn't so bad and I could completely see them um, keeping all, all three of those guys, even if we're saying, well, it's, you know, they're keeping these guys too long or the cost is too much. Eh, they're all three really great players. You could do worse. It is the adding from outside where we saw them struggle last winter and adding from inside where they just don't have as much coming. And then the third thing is playing the wrong guys. But some of that may have been Dusty Baker, where we talked about McCormick. And the other thing was continuing to play Martin Maldonado, um, which almost worked out because Texas kept walking him instead of playing <laughs> Yiner Diaz. And I understand Yiner Diaz is not supposed to be um, a great defensive catcher, but all the evidence we had said Maldonado wasn't that anymore either. So that really didn't make a whole lot of sense. So anyway, little ranty, but... They can get better almost right away just by changing who they play regularly at those two positions. Put Dubon back on the end of the bench, which is what exactly what I think his role is. And I don't know if Maldonado just becomes a backup or what. It almost doesn't matter. Like He shouldn't be playing every day behind the plate. He's never had the bat. He doesn't have the glove. You upgrade immediately at those two positions. All of a sudden, you're you're a better club and maybe a little better equipped to handle, hey, Maybe one of these guys we're talking about is a bunch of older players on this club you're depending on. Maybe Verlander's not the same. Maybe Altuve's not quite the same. Well, you can get better at two positions right away. I think that's a great way of looking at it. Just using this current roster a little bit differently. And I actually don't mean to, to be negative at all uh, about Dusty Baker on his way out the door. I mean, congrats mm-hmm. to him on a great career. I think mm-hmm. over time, especially this last chapter with Houston and getting that World Series win, it changes the arc quite a bit from where it was like when I first became part of the baseball media world and my small little way, there was a lot of negativity around Dusty for uh, overworking young pitchers and and just doing things that a lot of managers at that time were going to do right. Just being a typical manager of the era. And I think over time, I think the appreciation for Dusty Baker has changed a little bit. And I just think that success in, in 2022, especially uh, is going to change a lot about the way people are going to look back at his career as a whole. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think we're intentionally like jabbing, uh, throwing jabs at Dusty Baker here about Chaz McCormick as much as wondering, like, why didn't that guy play more? And why didn't Yiner Diaz play more? And there was a specific example, something we talked about on the pod that came up in the middle of the ALCS. Mm-hmm. They used Jonathan Singleton as a pinch hitter in the eighth inning of a game. With yes, the bases loaded against the Rangers to get the platoon advantage to go lefty righty mm-hmm. instead of using Yiner Diaz. He hit a pinch hitting, I think, in the ninth of that game. That is a mistake, right? And yeah. I think you yes, generally you want the platoon advantage, but the reason I thought that was a huge mistake is that look at what you did with these two players over the course of the season. Yiner Diaz was on your roster every single day. Look what yeah. he did against big league pitching 
while John Singleton was working his way back to the big leagues. John Singleton's a nice story, just that he made it back. That's a great, that's a great story. Yep. But from a, a tactical decision, and I have no idea if that's just dusty in the moment, if that's a front office conversation before the game scripted, if this scenario happens, do this. I don't know. I, I wasn't wasn't able to ask that question because I am you know recording podcasts from the confines of a cozy bedroom <laughs> thousands of miles away. Right. But I would I would love to know how you by process beyond the platoon advantage landed on guy who was barely in the big leagues in that spot as opposed to guy who would play more if he was a better catcher, but hits a ton and should play anyway. Yeah, right. I, I have almost nothing to add to that. I guess you know what I will add. Dusty Baker improved substantially as a manager uh, over the course of his many, many stops. And you could really see it uh, culminating in, I think, generally a really good job he did while he was in Houston. Um, you know, this was maybe tactically his worst year in Houston in terms of making some more glaring mistakes and mistakes that I think did really cost them in the postseason. But generally, I thought he was fine. And I think the whole thing about him overworking pitchers was true earlier in his career. And at pretty much every stop, he got better. So, you know, for which I give him a ton of credit. Like, it's not necessarily easy to do that. To you know, Some guys learn. Um, you know, Terry Francona wasn't overusing pitchers, but it's a guy who his first stop as a manager in uh, Philly was not good. And then when Boston hired him, people were like, this is a joke. He's terrible. And he was better right away. Lots of guys are better at their second job. Baker managed in five, four, five different spots. Five, right? In every spot, I think. Certainly after the Cubs debacle, he kept getting better. So at, at an age where also a lot of people would just sort of say, well, he is what he is, right? That's just who he is. No, he absolutely improved. So criticizing him for, I think, some pretty glaring mistakes in particularly in the ALCS and just generally over the course of this year is not, I don't know, the guy that was intends this to be like crushing his legacy, but he did make those mistakes and they may be a little bit better off with someone else in that job who maybe is a little more flexible, say about incorporating some of these younger players or less tied to um, the guys who got us here, right? Dance with the one you brought, that's sort of that that to me is where Baker, I think, sort of fell short a little bit there. But I also look at this for the Astros as an opportunity. It's two spots in the lineup. They can get better right away without having to change any of the personnel on the roster. That's a gift. That's tremendous. That just sets you off uh, on a, on the right foot for the offseason. And it's almost like two things. You just I don't, I don't have to worry about those two spots. We got those covered. We can focus our resources elsewhere because they do have other holes to fill. But it's a lot easier given the fact that they have two guys right there who can step in in center field and a catcher. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Have we reached the point for manager tactics where it's more about avoiding mistakes than actually making good decisions? It, it almost just seems like you're you're in, we've created this this I don't know this evaluation process of managers where we're just counting errors. And we, Rob Thompson last week we talked about the usage of Craig Kimbrell, right? I think it took too long for Rob Thompson to back off of Craig Kimbrell in high leverage spots this postseason. That's yep. a mistake. It doesn't mean Rob Thompson is a bad manager, but it's a mistake that deserves to be pointed out. And that's just part of it. That's having your mistakes called out is part of the territory with that job. Always has been, always will be. I guess we could, we could talk about the Phillies for a bit. We should because they've got a couple more urgent situations to sort out. Most specifically, Aaron Nola is a free agent. Keith, like yep. that's a. That's a significant piece to potentially lose. This is probably Nola's only chance to cash in on a huge deal. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine he's going to test the market. But the Phillies, John Middleton, has shown a willingness to spend on this roster. So it seems like there's at least a a good chance, if not a very good chance, that he'll stay in Philadelphia. Um, So kind of a two-parter. Like One, like how much of a commitment would you want to make to Aaron Nola based on what he's done to this point in his career? And do you think the Phillies ultimately end up keeping him? Yes, I think they end up keeping him. They only have two major free agents this offseason, Nola and Reese Hoskins. Everyone around here, I live in greater, the greater Philly area, folks who don't know, everyone loves Reese Hoskins. They don't really have a spot for him. You know, if you're a Phillies fan, that kind of sucks. But you cannot invest in this guy, given who else is on the roster right now. Um, you know, maybe if they hadn't made some of the additions they made two winters ago, that'd be a different story. But that's just where they are. Uh I think Nola wants to stay. I think the club wants to keep him. They clearly have the cash. They are coming off a a pennant and then coming within a win of the World Series. Okay, which I think Rob Thompson probably managed them out of, but we can maybe or maybe not go there later. But I think Nola wants to stay. And I think they, not only do I think they want to keep him, I think they kind of have to keep him just from a sort of keep the fans happy motivation. That's not a reason you sign him, but it's a reason that some teams sign. Do, teams act on that reason, whether it is rational or not. Um, I, I mean, on Nola, I think he's a stud. I think you saw, you know, hopefully the last outing doesn't overshadow what he did about the month before that when they made some changes to his delivery about mid-September or so. I think that's the real Aaron Nola. I think there were a lot of things Happening with him, he has said the pitch clock messed with him. There were there were some delivery changes that he needs to um, uh, that he needed to make, and he was substantially better after that point. And I think that's who he is. I mean, I think he's a number one for some teams, and he is a number two for almost every team. And despite having little elbow troubles here and there, he's actually been really pretty durable over the course of his career, which is another thing, you know, durability is not forever, but that's the guy I would bet on certainly. So yeah, I think they, I think he stays, he may go out, explore free agency a little bit and then just get the take 
you know, push the Phillies into making a better offer and staying. And I also think they kind of need him in that, yes, they have they have other starters, but they don't have anybody who's close to Nola. And if they let him go, they're replacing him with someone else. And there's not really anybody on the market who's clearly as good as or better than he is. Yeah, I think one thing that makes a team really dangerous when you think about how different postseason baseball is than regular season baseball is just having two guys at the top that can just take over a game. And I realize, yes, Aaron Nola, <laughs> it, it didn't happen last time out, but generally a Wheeler-Nola rotation going into a series looks really good. If you don't have that guy, you know, you're know you happy to have Wheeler, but then you're mixing and matching a little earlier in the series, right? Mm-hmm. You're not just having one bullpen game. You might have one and a half bullpen games. That could be a problem. Uh, I think the other issue is, you know, their system, Andrew Painter, like we thought he would have a chance to be a, a big part of this team this year. Of course, he had Tommy John surgery midseason. That probably takes him out of the equation until like the very end of 2024. You can't rely on that return. He's such a young guy anyway. So it's probably more of a 2025 window as far as when you expect to get a lot from Painter. Mm-hmm. As you look at the rest of the system, do you see anybody else that could emerge to be a strong contributor in this rotation. I think they, they were able to get a lot out of Ranger Suarez in this postseason, yep. And I think his, his range has been pretty wide during the time he's been in the big leagues. Like his first run as a starter, when he moved out of the bullpen was amazing. No one looked at those numbers and said, yeah, that's who he is as a starter indefinitely. But the regular season this year was a far cry from that. Right. So are we splitting yep. the difference? Are we looking at him as a true mid rotation guy? Is he a finished product or is he actually someone that could get even better with a few tweaks? Yeah, I'm I'm a Ranger guy. Now I think this is what he is, but I'm a fan. Like I th- I believe in him. I do think he is, you know, they talk him up because he's this great postseason pitcher. He's just a really good pitcher. He's an above average big league starter. He's a great number three, especially for a contender. If you have Wheeler Nola and Rangers, you're three, you're in great shape. You are set for just about any playoff series. Um, so to me, he's not he's not a concern. I don't think there's more. I would be very surprised if there was yet another year. I think this is about what he is barring something crazy like the development of another or addition of another pitch which is a very mixed bag also for a lot of guys i i think this is what he is and you you ride this version of ranger as you as your third starter for as long as you can um and i do think he's better they have nominally three other starters um uh it came in coming at the end of the season lorenzen's a free agent but to me it was very clear it was they had the three guys who could start a postseason game in Wheeler, Nola, Suarez. And then the other three guys was a little bit of mix and match, maybe play some matchup stuff. Thompson didn't look at it that way. But to me, Suarez is absolutely kind of above the line, right? You are very comfortable this guy starting any game in a playoff series for you. Yeah, I think the the wild card for me is, is Taiwan Walker. I, I thought he would, I thought he'd put up numbers closer to what he did in 2022. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought we could see maybe a high three ZRA. Good whip, uh, had some issues with home runs. The walk rate even crept up a good bit too. Didn't miss as many bats. Like got kind of just a little worse across the board. Yeah. And that's in year one of a four-year deal. I wonder what the bounce back could look like for him because he could also be a good mid-rotation guy still. I, I think it's, it's at least possible for that to happen. But I haven't dug in enough yet to figure out like why things went so poorly for him year one in Philadelphia compared to what he did for those two seasons with the Mets. Look, he walked away too many guys, right? That's like captain obvious, right? I think that was the worst walk rate of his career. Yeah. I looked it up. It is the worst walk rate of his career. Um, and a lot of it seemed like, especially early in outings where it was 
control and just command like a lot of poor location early in counts. It was frustrating also because I talked him up. I thought it was a great signing. I thought he was one of the most interesting free agents. The addition of that splitter um, I thought made him uh, you know, a different guy, made me would have made me more willing, interested in giving him a long-term deal like that. And he was just, yeah, he was just erratic. He was erratic, which is the last thing I kind of expected from him. Um, and I don't know, right? It's easy to look at him and say, well, he's just not going to walk as many guys because he's never done that before. I don't really know why he was walking so many guys. That's the problem it, that I keep seeing is, yeah, he's he's never really been that wild before. But why the hell was he so wild this year? I haven't seen an explanation where it's like, oh, it was the pitch clock. Okay. I mean, I mean, that might be nonsense, but some guys say that the pitch clock really did affect them. I don't know if that was the case with him. I'm just making that up as a possible explanation. There's been no sign that he was hurt. Obviously, the Phillies trusted him or Rob Thompson trusted him so little, they left him off the playoff roster. Oh, no, wait a minute. He was on the playoff roster. He just didn't pitch. And apparently, he has a lot of feelings about that. And I have to say, I can't entirely blame him. There were a couple of situations in that last series where they probably should have had Taiwan Walker, at least up and warming. But, you know, he walked a lot of guys this year. Maybe that's why they didn't want to use him. Then they shouldn't have used the roster spot. But that's a separate issue. I just, I don't know. I don't know as a, as a, like I said, as somebody who really talked him up as a free agent, talked up the signing, I was surprised and kind of disappointed at how erratic, because it's not just the walks. The walks are the tip of the iceberg, but it was just a lot of poor location and a lot of working, what seemed like working out of the zone, maybe even working too much with the splitter, because that is pretty much a chase pitch for a lot of guys. And um, you know, the splitter was still an above average pitch for him by StatCast's run values, but not as much as it was the year before. So maybe it is a pitch selection. Maybe it's working with a different coaching staff and different catcher. Some of those things are fixable. But also, if he's just not able to throw strikes at the same level, then that's maybe not so fixable. And that does change who he is and what kind of value I think they'll get from him going forward. Yeah, you wonder if he became a little more predictable using that pitch more. I mean, it's hard to say a guy that has as many pitches as Taiwan Walker does becomes predictable, but sometimes you fall into habits, patterns, different things that uh, simply let hitters kind of tee off on something. And there there can be diminishing returns with pitches that are either new or secondary. It's like sometimes you'll look at, at pitch values or or the results that a, a pitcher gets on a certain offering and you think, oh, he throws this pitch 15% of the time, but it gets whiffs at a 35% clip and, and opposing hitters hit 140 and slug 225 against it. He should throw that pitch more. Part of what makes that pitch effective in some yeah. instances is the fact that it's not used as much. It's the catching hitters completely off guard and having certain situations where you can use it. Sometimes, not always. Sometimes you can scale it up. Sometimes you can't. Especially a pitch that's kind of a chase pitch that's off and out of the zone, right? And the more you throw it, maybe hitters just guess more. Or maybe hitters learn to pick it up. Maybe it's a pitch that's effective if you're facing them once or twice a game, but everything's less effective if you're facing them three times a game. There's a lot of reasons why that could be the case. So, yeah, I completely agree with you. I have not done a deep enough dive into Walker season either. I'm sure the Phillies are doing this. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll be very curious what the story is when he shows up in spring training too. Does he look different? Is he saying anything different? Is the club saying anything different? Is he even with the Phillies in spring training, given his feelings that he has <laughs> been putting out in the ether? Um, which, again, I can't entirely blame him, but there are also probably better ways to handle these things. So I kind of come down on both sides. 
Well, there will be plenty of teams that miss out on free agent pitching that will be looking for innings, and they will mm-hmm. probably be interested in Taiwan Walker, especially if the Phillies are willing to even a small portion of the next three years of that deal, right? So mm-hmm. there's a number of ways that could play out. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. If you're as obsessed with basketball as I am, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Hey guys, this is JJ Reddick. Twice a week, I'm cooking up something special for basketball junkies on my podcast, The Old Man and the Three. I bring on guests in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, like Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash or Paulo Bencaro on his shooting workouts with Kevin Durant, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron when they were teammates in Miami. But it's not just about the player interviews. Every Monday, I break down the top three things happening around the NBA without the outlandish takes. Often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler, we dive deep into topics like rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? The Old Man of the Three is the only companion podcast you'll need during the playoffs this year. Be sure to listen to The Old Man of the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you mentioned Reese Hoskins. I think pretty much the the moment that you had both Schwarber and Castellanos on this roster with long-term deals, Schwarber through 25, Castellanos through 26, that was the sign that Reese Hoskins probably wasn't going to stay in Philadelphia once he reached free agency. And of course, they got by without him this year because of the injury. I think there's still productive years left in that bat. I, I think oh, there's going to be too. a team that's you know power light that ends up signing him probably on a multi-year deal. I would assume mm-hmm. it's going to be a decent multi-year deal, even with the yeah. injury. He still has a shot to get paid substantially and deservedly so. Um, but I think this is a guy that I would actually bet on for three or four years to come in and do what he's done for most of his big league career to this point. Yeah, uh, totally agree. Good player, not a star. Um Probably better if he's not playing first base for you. He's never been a particularly good defensive player. He's worse in the outfield. Um, but if he is your first baseman, the battle play, uh, I don't think there's, I, I don't really think there's more in there than what you've seen, but I think he can keep doing what he's been doing. Just what is he, two, two and a half war player? He can be that guy for several more years. He's a very solid, maybe slightly above average big league first baseman slash DH. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of hope he gets those offers. Like it sucks to lose your platform year to an injury 
that in his case really shouldn't affect his game, but he just doesn't have data. People didn't get to see him. Like There are clear negatives, even if we're not actually saying, oh, he's going to be a worse player when he comes back. Like, I think he'll be the same guy. But it's still lousy that he didn't get to play in what turned out to be his free agent year. And that's a, that's this is also probably his goodbye from Philadelphia, where he was pretty beloved. And that, you know, that doesn't get you paid necessarily, but players have attachments to their teams and fans have attachments to their players. I'm not dismissing that. I always think of things from sort of more of a business perspective. That stuff's real. Um, that's not the exit that anybody wants to make. But I think I, I do believe he'll get paid. I think there will be some teams kind of lurking in the shallows saying hey this you know this this guy's actually sneaky good and maybe he gets a little overlooked because he didn't play last year yeah that and i think i mean teams obviously looked far beyond war anyway when you look at war and you see a lot of two win seasons you think oh as a first baseman he's he's gonna be 31 in march you can't sign that guy to a long-term deal it's like well war is gonna penalize him for being a bad defender at first base look at the fact that he's 26 percent better than league average for his entire career as a hitter and he hits for that kind of power without striking out a lot a lot of guys that tap into power like reese hoskins are going to strike out 28 30 percent of the time right he Mm -hmm. doesn't do that now so you have some time i think before more swing and miss might be there it seems like he's always had above average plate skills he doesn't chase a ton of pitches outside the strike zone so Um, I think there's a chance we could still see a couple seasons, especially if he isn't worried about playing defense as much. Maybe he's a part-time first baseman and a part-time DH. He splits it depending on what team Mm -hmm. he lands on. We could see another season like 2018. I think that's very much in range. You know, that's a 354 OBP with 30 homers. I think that's the kind of of bat you're getting if you bring uh, Reese Hoskins into the equation. But clearly replacing him is something the the Phillies already had to do because of the injury that he suffered way back uh, in spring training, you know, Craig Kimbrell's gone. Uh, so you get that to, to be excited about Phillies fans. I don't think don't the fans are going to be as upset about that one. Yeah. Yeah. I think they'll, they'll be just fine. So most of this roster still intact. I think the, the bigger threat with the Phillies is just how quickly the Mets become good. Like how much more difficult does the NL East become in, in the next year or two, right? You know, David Stern's taking over in that front office, Everyone thinks that Craig Council is just going to follow Stearns there and, and manage that team, and they're going to just go straight to the moon like right away. But I think it's going to take a year or two to get all the pieces in place again for the Mets. They, they started to trade some of the veterans away at the trade deadline, Keith. But this is this is not this is not an obvious like clear playoff team right now that the Mets have assembled. We'll see what they do between now and opening day. I'm sure they'll try to play some version of. Let's be good enough to get there because there's no reason not to when you've got money to spend like Steve Cohen does. But they're probably a couple of years away from their 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 goal of being a juggernaut. Right. So Atlanta's there right now. I think you'd still probably take the Phillies over the Mets today, at least based on the starting points for these rosters going into the offseason as you look at 2024, wouldn't you? Yes. And I don't see an easy path for the Mets to be, for lack of a better term, real contenders. Um, in that, look, what did Arizona win? 84 games this year, and they're in the World Series. And I'm not diminished, not dismissing their legitimacy, but 84 wins is not what you aim for going into a season. I, I guess unless you're Jerry DePoto. Um, you want to get to you're, you're thinking like 90 plus. And in some divisions, you might be thinking more. And I have a hard time looking at the Mets, particularly the pitching staff, the rotation right now, and seeing where 90 wins are coming from 
and it's not a great free agent class. So, and they, and they have some real question marks they need to solve on the offensive side, need to answer on the offensive side. So there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot going on here. Um, you know, they're committed to Jeff McNeil, who is older and really fell off last year. And um, they'll probably need another outfielder there. I mean, God, there's, they have a lot to do. <laughs> there's a lot <laughs> there. And the farm system has been pretty gutted by, um, was pretty gutted by a lot of trades and some pretty significant trades. And they did start to restock a little bit at the trade deadline last year. I thought they drafted extremely well. Um, again, the last, I would actually say the last two years. So it's getting there, but I don't know that there's a lot of real short-term impact there. Um, yeah, there. It, it's going to be a bit, it's going to take a minute to get them back. And so I'm thinking if you're any of the other NL East contenders, you're probably fearing the Mets in 25, especially 26 more than you are this year. Yeah, I, I think what's particularly challenging about figuring it out is is on the one hand, you have to think about the Mets being players for any major free agent at any time because yes. when they think they're going to be good again isn't so far into the future where they're going to just say, no, we can't. We don't want to get Shohei Otani now because we're not going to be good for four years. That's not like that at all. So what could make them dangerous faster is if they do, in fact, land Otani. And it's sort of like what the Rangers did before they were ready getting Semyon and Seager, right? They became a lot more respectable really fast because those guys yep. weren't going to be available later. Yep. And then everything sort of came together at the perfect time. So, you know, you can look at this this Mets team and say even deeper pockets with ownership, a possibility of adding Otani plus in the offseason, you start doing that, the pitching questions are going to be there almost certainly because it's harder. I think it's harder to commit to a lot of pitching before you're ready. That's a little more risky than throwing the big piles of money at position players. In this case, Otani does both eventually mm -hmm. once he gets back to pitching again. Um, so the pitching question is the bigger, like how are they going to get there? How are they going to close the gap between other perennial contenders and where they are today with what they're lacking in that, that corner of their roster? Yeah. And I don't think it's in the system, right? I don't know that. The, I don't think there's high end starters in the system. If there are high end starters in the system, it's going to be those sort of out of nowhere ish guys. Um, you know, the guys who look like fourth starters and change a pitch or, you know, suddenly pick up velocity and we're all like, Oh my God, where did that guy come from? Which happens. I mean, hell, Christopher Sanchez was a pretty good starter for the Phillies this year. And I think just about everybody had him, um, maybe even the Phillies themselves coming into the year had him as a reliever. So, yeah, I'm just looking at notes on the system. I mean, player heavy right now. So they are going to have to go out and invest in pitching, which they can do. But this offseason's market doesn't offer a ton of high-end pitching. Um, so, and maybe it's a different offseason. I just don't think they can do that now. I don't think they can rebuild that staff right now for contention. And in that case, what I would do if I were running baseball ops would be much more, oh, I'm going to uh, try to address the position player questions we have with good long-term solutions and then deal with the pitching at some other point in the future that's closer to our actual window of contention, which is pretty close to, I think, what the Rangers did anyway, right? They went and got the position players on very long-term deals, figuring we'll get the offensive core in place. 
and then dealt with the pitching kind of later on. And some of it worked and some of it didn't like that would be a good formula for the Mets, especially given what they have in the, in the system right now, how position player heavy the farm system is at this point. Yeah. And I think when I look at the Rangers, pretty even prior to this, this new competitive window for them, the thing they were doing pretty consistently well for a few years was shopping in the, the second tier of starting pitcher free agency. It goes kind of back to the Mike Miner signing a few years ago. That's just been an area where they have done particularly well. I think Lance Lynn was a guy they signed and eventually yeah. flipped. Like you, you, if you do well in that group, that can change outcomes pretty quickly because either the position player core in the case of the Mets, your, your young guys get better, your pitching stays healthy, and you're on track for a playoff spot and you just let it ride. Maybe even you add a little bit because you, your owner is very tolerant of spending more money. Or you have pitching midseason if those guys are pitching well and you're underperforming and you're trading those guys to get better for the future. So mm-hmm. I think that's the that's the playbook for sure. It's, it's shopping in that mid-tier uh, probably taking a few bargain bin shots the way that the, the Brewers often did under Stearns. If Wade Miley uh, is is a Met on an opening day 2024, Keith, I will not be surprised at all because Wade Miley, I think, will be employed as long as uh, David Stearns is, is yeah. running the club. Among, he just, look, he's a, he's right a decent like veteran <laughs> guy, but um, I, I just I think that's always been like this this running joke. Brett Anderson, like Brett Anderson, gets a, a minor league invite uh, to spring training because. You need depth, and I think they'll take a bunch yeah. of depth shots like that too. And I wouldn't be surprised if they find one or two that work. Their yeah. park also, that ballpark, tough place to hit, good place mm-hmm. to pitch. So you can maybe get away with throwing some guys out there that you wouldn't necessarily want to play in a more neutral or even a hitter-friendly sort of environment. So they've got some things that will shape the types of gambles they take. I'm with you on this position player core. I kind of thought Francisco Alvarez ran out of gas. I remember at one point mid-season, I think Will Salmon joined me on the pod, and I was asking him, I said, how does Alvarez look defensively? He's like, a lot better than I ever would have expected based on everything I was ever told about Alvarez. He looks like he's put in the work and he's gotten a lot better. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, as you've seen him now at the big league level for a year, do you feel like that facet of Alvarez's game has improved enough where you can continue down the path of keeping him as your your primary catcher as your, your next window opens back up? I don't think I think I always had him as, hey, he's a bat first catcher, right? His his bat is always going to be the thing that carries him. Yeah, he did. God, he really slumped. His August was awful at the plate. Holy cow. And his second half, just in general, he did hit a couple of homers in September, which sort of salvaged the monthly split a bit. But yeah, I mean, he could very, that may very well have been the case, right? That's a long season for anybody. It's particularly a long season for a catcher. Um, I had him as a, he's never going to be a great defender, but you're not going to have to move him out from behind the plate. That was the kind of catcher I thought he would be. Um, I would like to see him catch a full season and maybe not have this fatigue to deal with before coming to to saying whether I think he's actually taken a step forward um, and whether he's, you know, he actually did. You know, the one thing is he didn't throw as well as I expected. He's got some arm strength, but also everybody stole a billion bases this year. And so, God, we saw some of that in the NLCS where it's like JT Realmoto can really throw. And hell, Zach Wheeler holds runners well. And the Diamondbacks were still stealing almost at will. So there's a lot of stuff in there that I'm like, I don't feel great about reacting to any of this. Um, 
God, even the limited defensive metrics on catchers, which aren't which is probably my least favorite of any position when applying to any position, they don't even agree on Alvarez. So I, I want to kick that one down the road a little bit. Let's see him some more next year. Um, but I don't think it was ever fair. I knew scouts who thought he couldn't catch. They were just like DH him and let him hit him. He ain't that bad. Some of these guys, I mean, God, Kevin Prado, who's in their own system, he's got some issues defensively where he may end up not able to stay at the position. Um, I'm not moving him immediately, but I'm, I saw him again in fall league. It's like, this is a little rougher than I remembered. And I've definitely talked to some scouts who think he's it's just a bat. You don't have a catcher there at all. Alvarez is a t- is above that. He's a great, at least a half grade better than that defensively. And look, the thing that matters the most at this point is did, were the Mets happy with how he was defensively in the big leagues. Um, I guess that would include the people coming in as well so that they just leave him there because he's only 21, 22. He'll be 22 next year. He can get better. He's still young enough that he can still get quite a bit better, especially if he is willing to put the work in. So my God, leave him there. I would give him at least two more years, given how valuable the bat might be. Um, He's above the Gary Sanchez line. How about that? <laughs> and we certainly heard a lot less complaining. I feel like the moment Gary Sanchez got off the plane in New York was like, oh, he can't catch. Give, give, give him give him a minute. Gary Sanchez, who had a very nice half season in San Diego, actually, and might get a big league deal out of it before he got hurt. Someone someone somewhere will sign him and let him play because I they would. should. Yeah. Why why would you just completely give up on that possibility? There's enough there and no one has enough catching. You know, even with the limitations and the noise kind of built into various catching metrics that we have that are public facing mm-hmm. anyway, there's a lot more good in those metrics than there is for bad for Alvarez. And yeah, that slump that happened, maybe, maybe hitter, maybe opposing pitchers found a hole. Maybe that's part of the story too. He hits the ball very hard. He doesn't mm-hmm. strike out a ton. I think he's going to keep getting better as a hitter too. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about Alvarez. I think of their core young guys, when you look at Alvarez, Beatty's part of that. And I think you could say Ronnie Mauricio is kind of part of that group, even though we didn't see a lot of him in the big leagues this year. I'd still bet on Alvarez being the best all-round long-term player for this team of those three. Of that group? Absolutely. Completely agree. The other guys have a lot more variability. There's a lot more downside to risk with both of them. And I do like both Mauricio and Beatty as prospects. I think Beatty's bat is going to get better. I'd be very surprised if he didn't get better at some point. And what I was very glad to see with Mauricio, his his plate discipline is questionable, certainly. It's going to be an area for work. But you saw the good, right? He smoked some balls in the big leagues. For a guy who is not overly physical, but he kind of does it with his wrists and his forearms, the ball just comes off his bat differently. And I've been saying that about him for at least two years now, where I keep saying, this is this is where I missed on Alfonso Soriano was that Soriano had pretty lousy plate discipline, but he could just flick the bat at the ball and it would take off. Mauricio does a lot of that. And so and that turns out that can carry you a long way and buy you time to if you put in the work. Developing pitch recognition or, or ball strike recognition, certainly if you're in the right organization, too. And, Mauricio is, to me, he's, there's a lot of untapped potential there, but I was glad at least he, in limited time in the big leagues, showed a lot of high-quality contact because it's a sign to everybody, including the incoming Mets people, um, the existing people in the front office and the incoming folks, like, 
oh no, there's there's a lot of potential here. And just because this guy doesn't walk a lot, and he doesn't, and he may never walk a lot. It the, the shape of the production may be different, but he could be a really, really good player. Yeah, I, I think one thing that just jumped off the page to me, this this happened to just be something I was doing some research for a fantasy league I'm in. Mm-hmm. A 117.3 yeah. max exit velo. I saw you that and I was that? like I I, I thought I thought I pulled the data wrong. I like went back and looked at the player page. I was like, holy cow, that's a mm-hmm. again, max EV, the, the, the ball you hit the hardest. Or, yeah, it's just one. Know, that's it's no, one. It's just one. Yeah. But I, I'd still like the idea of thinking of that as like a player's raw power potential. It, that's just like it gives you an idea of how much damage they can do in that regard. And then you look at the result, double A AA and triple A consistently, 2020 player in, in less than full seasons, as far as like what a full major league season looks like plate appearance wise. And it's so easy for me as someone who kind of came out of the, I don't know, I came, I came into the baseball landscape as like part of the post money ball era, right? Where we've obsessed over certain things. And I think my flaw as someone who tries to analyze this game is like, I can sometimes get fixated on what a player doesn't do. And kind of overwrite what a player does do really well. And I think yep. what people could be doing with Ronnie Mauricio as a prospect, not necessarily Mets fans. I think Mets fans are pretty high on Ronnie Mauricio and mm-hmm. wanted to see him earlier because I wanted to see him earlier. Mm-hmm. But I think there are some people that would say, you know, Adolis Garcia. Like I, I missed on Adolis Garcia when the Rangers started giving him an opportunity because I looked past the quality of the contact. And looked directly at the plate skills and said, he's just a little old. These are pretty bad plate skills for a player this age. This usually doesn't work. And there are so many things that Garcia was already doing well, and he's improved. Like he, he's, mm-hmm. His plate skills this year were better. And we could argue about how sticky that is, how sustainable that is, and that's a fair argument to have. But I think sometimes if you want players to just look sabermetrically perfect, you can look you can look right past very good players because they don't walk enough or they don't do something enough that you think the perfect player has to do. Yeah. Don't it's funny. It's uh, you're almost echoing the words of my old boss in Toronto, JP Richardi is like, you can't look for the perfect player. There's very, very few of those. Um, and if you do that, you get caught in the trap of focusing on what guys can't do instead of recognizing your roster is going to be full of guys who can't do certain things. Just about everybody on the roster is going to have something he can't do. Focus on what they can do. Can they? Are they good for a certain role? Can they help the roster as it's currently constructed? And are there things there that might be able to improve? Which is also very much tied to the organization you're in, um, where you know Garcia in particular started uh, stopped expanding the zone so much, and in particular, just um like drastically reduced how much he was chasing sliders out of the zone. He, he seems to have worked on recognizing that one pitch in particular. Pitchers were just getting him out, going slider out of the zone, slider down and away in particular, and he stopped chasing it. Uh, it's not that different from the Austin Riley change, or those one of the big Austin Riley changes, which is these are both guys I did. Started, Garcia's was shorter. I did a whole story on Austin Riley completely changing his approach and going from a guy who looked like he was about to get option to triple a to an all-star and a guy who I think who should be on MVP ballots, who's going to be on MVP ballots probably every year for the next seven or eight years. Um, which is a reminder also that players can improve those things. So yeah, it's okay to say this player can't do this one thing, but that doesn't mean you sort of crumple up the scouting report, throw in the trash, right? He is 
the what can he do? Okay, what are the what are the pros? What are the cons? What are the strengths or weaknesses? And are those weaknesses also opportunities? Or are they just permanent weaknesses and he's never going to be better? Where you look at a pitcher's delivery and say, that guy's never going to throw strikes. Okay, that's fine. But as it turns out, guys who are pretty hacking up there, hacktacular, I think is the actual technical term, <laughs> sometimes they get better. And Mauricio is a guy for me where maybe he never draws a ton of walks. But if he doesn't overly expand the zone, he's got bat speed. He clearly has wrist and forearm strength because he is not very big to be generating exit velocities like that. His average exit velocity in his limited time in the big leagues was a tick over 90. He does that over a full season. He'll be among the major league leaders. I'm not sure. That's probably a little small sample bias there. But a lot of this is just, hey, swing at strikes. Even if you're just swinging at strikes or pitches that are very close to strikes, you're going to be a pretty good big leaguer even without a high walk rate. So yeah, focus on the things that he can do and then see if you can make the rest of the package work. And I wouldn't have said this. I didn't think the last regime was disinclined to trust him. I wasn't sure Buck Showalter was going to particularly care for Mauricio's approach. I have a feeling Stearns and whoever else he ends up bringing in, they're at the very least going to look at Mauricio from that perspective that we're talking about, say there are things he can do that could make him pretty special. What else can he do and what do we need to work on here and find a way to make that work? They're not, I would be very surprised if they just suddenly gave up on him, uh, benched him or traded him away for too little value at this point. Maybe a year or two down the road, we get more data, we see him more, that changes. But I do think the change in at the top with the Mets may end up helping him more than any of their other young players in the big leagues or prospects in the high minors. How much do you think, I know this can vary from organization to organization, how much do you think the, a, a player's development, like, how much can it really be improved in the minor leagues? Like, So I think one way we've talked about it in the past is you can, if you have great plate coverage, if you can hit everything, if you can be a mm-hmm. bad ball hitter, Sometimes that can be a bit of a curse because because you hit everything, mm-hmm. you don't wait for something that you can drive more effectively. And I feel like you'd find across different organizations a pretty wide range of an ability to get through to a player, either because you don't have enough coaches, you don't have the right coaches to, to correct that. Whereas by the time you get to the big leagues, you have your best coaches there generally, and you, you have... You kind of have to fix things when you get to the big leagues because by then you're like, all right, this isn't working. Now I need to listen if I wasn't previously listening. I'm not implying this about Ronnie Mauricio. It's a broader sort of question, but mm-hmm. like, like how much of it can be just survive the minor leagues, get to the big leagues with interesting tools, and then your approach might be refined to the best of its ability because it's not necessarily something that can be easily fixed along the way by the coaches that are in place at each of these stops. Yeah, and I think that the contraction in the minors and in some places the increased pressure to get guys to the big leagues faster is hurting player development. I just think we are there are plenty of individual success stories around baseball of players making pretty significant changes. Kyle Bradish is one where it's funny, uh, Chris Holt with the Orioles, um, he was the major league pitching coach. They have taken that away so he can just focus on developing pitchers in their system as a, I I forgot what it's director of pitcher development or something. This is one of, I think Holt's better success stories is they really changed Bradish's delivery um, from his posture through his, through the, from when he 
really starting from the moment he begins the delivery to release and changed his arm slot to take him from a guy who's like that arm slot and delivery is not going to work as a starter to, Hey, he's like a top six pitcher in the American league right now. And he is so different. You can see video of him from 21 or so to where he is now. Totally different. That is a huge win for the Orioles. It's a great player development story for the player too. And for the coaching staff there. And I love highlighting those stories. Those take time. They take patience. Um, it's a lot easier to do when you're not trying to win right away. And I think we get a lot of these where Anthony Volpe is a good example of a guy who probably didn't belong in the big league roster to start this season. Um, I think he's going to be okay in the end. Certainly for the first month or two, he looked like he didn't belong in the big leagues at all. And I don't think that helped his development. Um, I thought they that was a pretty clear case of rushing him because they had a need. Maybe he wanted to show something. Hey, we got this guy. We think he's our shortstop of the future. Okay, that doesn't mean he's ready right now. That's a that it, it's okay if he needs another half season in the minors. And I think a lot of teams are now rushing those guys where we're we're losing some of those development opportunities. Oh, he was he he played great in high A for a month. Move him up immediately so we can show something. Or or he's not challenged enough. Well, let him go around the league a couple of times. Let hitters or pitchers. Face him a second, third time and try something different and see if he makes adjustments. You know what? If he's still mashing two or three weeks, I haven't really lost that much. We're just in very much a, a win now, promote now, show me what you got mentality um, that unless you're a team that's in a straight up rebuild mode and can take all the time um, and that, that those don't last forever either. At some point, ownership is going to want to start seeing some results. We're seeing guys move up too quickly through the minors or even get to the majors before the development process is done. And I I don't love seeing that because I think the long-term health of the game is is at least in large part determined by the strength of our star players. And, you know, the Mike Trouts, Ronald Acuna's, they'll still figure it out. But I hate the thought that we're losing some stars along the way because we're rushing guys and they'll just never reach their full potential. Yeah, I, I mean, I can... I can totally understand that. I think the contraction of the minor leagues is definitely, it's caused some extra wrinkles in player development, which is difficult enough to begin with. <laughs> I feel like when I criticize player development, it's, I'm, I'm like, look, this is, this is hard. It is hard to get a player from 17, 18 years old to being big league ready, correcting flaws and doing it in the environment that is the minor leagues where Levels of competition change. There are, are funny parks and leagues that can influence performance a lot, right? We talked about altitude and at some affiliates and and all the different things that can complicate that process. Um, so I, I think deciding when a player is ready to move up is a very difficult decision. Mm-hmm. One last question: We're running really long. So Wyatt Langford. I just I've been thinking about Wyatt Langford because I'm already thinking about 2024 in, in some facets of my life and. Wyatt Langford, to me, created this problem for the Rangers this season, right? I mean, he he hit everywhere they played him, so they kept trying to like bump him up, get him to the right level. And mm-hmm. and look, he was the fourth overall pick in the draft. And is that pressure, like like an industry wide pressure that was moving him up, or do you think that's actually more of like a merit based adjustment based on how polished he already is? Like, is because that's a pretty unusual path through the minors where he got to triple a already by the end of the season and he hit everywhere even though everywhere. it was a very brief stop at every level yeah he and nolan shanuel were the only players to get past double a in this year's draft and i mean some years there are none right so I, when i say only like 
is a big freaking deal that either of these did this. But Chaniel's situation was totally kind of forced, right? He was drafted clearly with that intent. Um, whereas Langford, oh, he started in high A and he was there for 24 games um, and mashed there. And then they bumped him up to double A and he spent 12 games there and actually hit better. And then I think for just the last week, they bumped him up to AAA because AAA was still playing and AA wasn't. So it was driven a little bit by, this guy's going so good. Why don't we just move him up and let him play another week? Let him play another two weeks. Because the A-ball season's ended, and then AA went another week beyond that, and then AAA went another week beyond that. I think that also drove it. But now you've got this guy who, okay, it was five games. He had 26 plate appearances in AAA. You're not, you shouldn't be making decisions based on that. But Jesus, this guy freaking hit everywhere yes he was the fourth pick in the draft and coming into the spring i had him first on my board until he got hurt and then and dylan cruz had just had a better season also and they both faced pretty similar competition both playing in the sec and you know langford is pretty clearly a corner outfielder and cruz at least for now can play center so it's fine cruz cruz earned it he's one and langford is two of course now i'm turning around thinking maybe it's the other way around maybe langford should have been one i don't know I don't know that I'll change it just based on what we saw, but I do think in Langford's case, it was a little bit more merit-based and a little bit more just to keep him playing while the minor leagues were still going. And good for the Rangers, Nat, for continuing to challenge him. Whereas Dylan Cruz got to double A, the Nats jumped him over high A, a stop I really think he should have made, and then he struggled in double A, and then I don't think sending him to triple A was ever, should have even been a consideration because he hadn't done enough in double A to justify it you might have just been setting up setting him up for a bigger struggle in okay in one week so anything can happen but why why run that risk at least stop where he got there because he at the very least had not earned the promotion with his performance for double a harrisburg right and i think when you start the 2024 season you know you probably send dylan cruz back to double a just because he didn't go well and that's totally fine that it didn't go well the first mm-hmm. time oh yeah it may be three or four weeks and then he's up at triple a and then we're talking about him maybe as a call up at some point maybe by the end of may everything goes well but like there's a there's a good chance we see dylan cruz in 2024 and not hitting at double a is not a sign of a real problem we're talking about 20 games the year he was drafted right all right we are gonna go uh more fall league talk i didn't really get to the fall league stuff today but i'm going to the fall league next week which will lead me to have a whole bunch of questions for keith when i come (laughs) back the week after that so if you are a fall league junkie good news more fall league content to come on this feed here in just a couple of weeks on our way out the door keith who wins the world series how many games i picked the rangers i don't feel super strongly about it these are both pretty good teams that are both pretty healthy. I mean, I understand Rangers don't have to grom. That's a big one. But the, what they rate, what the Rangers have is pretty good. I, I lean very slightly to the Rangers, which to me says Rangers in like six or seven. I'd be surprised if the series were shorter than that. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if the Diamondbacks won. I mean, Brandon fought since the Diamondbacks moved him on the moved him to the other side of the rubber in like late August or so. He's been pretty damn good. <laughs> Um, looked real good again in that uh, again that second start against the the Phillies right second time they saw him too and the right-handers especially could not make an adjustment I mean he's he was a top prospect so it's not a total shock but he was really bad uh, his first couple times in the big leagues earlier this year so I just 
yeah, Diamondbacks could totally pull this off and it wouldn't really be an upset. I mean, actually, I think the Diamondbacks being the Phillies was a bigger upset than the Diamondbacks being the Rangers would be. But I I don't think there's any analytical way to go about this. My gut leans a little bit towards the Rangers, but it's like 52 to 48. It gets really close with these two teams. What do you got? That's been my lean too. is like Rangers and six that the big thing for me is the the way the Rangers manage that bullpen. It's actually kind of similar to what the Diamondbacks have done that like that's the that's the thing I worry about the most with Texas. There are fewer relievers in the Texas bullpen that I trust. So it puts a little more pressure on their starting pitching. I think if there's an edge in starting pitching, it's only a slight one for the Rangers. I think the lineup for the Rangers top to bottom is a little stronger. That's been my lean for them. I think they can just out hit some of their flaws. But if it goes sideways, part of it's going to be the Rangers B relievers just getting crushed because I think that's where you can do a lot of damage against this team. But I'm excited for this series. I know there's some folks out there uh, that don't like this matchup. I think it's going to be fun. I think you're going to have everything you're looking for. If you you like offense, especially in a World Series, I think you're going to be really happy. Yeah, I heard some guy, some epidemiologist said it wasn't compelling. Oh, well, Hmm. I'm compelled. I am also compelled. I don't think any one person gets to decide if something is compelling or not for the rest no. of us. But uh, all right. On our way out the door, theathletic.com slash baseball show gets you a subscription. $2 a month for the first year. So be sure to get that on the socials. You can find Keith at Keith Law. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Monday. Enjoy the start of the World Series. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.